we are in Acts 20 this morning. It's page 929, 930 on the supplied Bible there in the chair in front of you, if you would use that. But I would invite you to grab a Bible and open up as we begin this morning. And as we settle into our sermon time, I do want to go to the Lord in prayer once again. Father, we would just ask that this morning you would meet us in our need, that your word would be clear and uh, proclaimed in a way that is faithful to the text and uh, gives glory to you. Uh, as we've sung about, Lord, we, we claim to believe lots of things, uh, and yet faith without works is dead. And so we ask ourselves, are we living these things out? Is, are the things that come out of our mouth things that we are truly passionate about in our hearts? And are they things that are uh, truly passionate about in the way that we live and display those things in our life? So challenge us this morning. Thank you for each person that is here. Lord, we pray for uh, our kids as they go to their kids' class time and they hear from your word as well, that your spirit would also be at work in their own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are, as I said, on our final uh, point looking at our church covenant. Uh, The ninth point in our covenant, uh, it, it reads this, we will, when we move from this place, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. So as we've worked our way through the the CBC membership covenant, these are all things, these, these points that we've been looking at, are things that we're striving to do, we're seeking to do as members of this local body. However, I trust that what we've been showing you over the last few months is that these aren't things that we... We, you know, that was around before I got here a couple years ago, but, but the leadership said, hey, these would be good things to do. Let's just put these on a piece of paper and get everybody to agree with these things. But these are actually principles plucked from the pages of Scripture that we are to be as Christians striving after. Regardless of a formalized covenant, these are the things that Scripture calls us to do. The things that we should be committed to to do. As we look at this last point, we also realize that these are not simply principles that we carry out only while we are at Covington Baptist Church. They're not just principles for this congregation. In fact, the point The covenant point says, when we move from this place. So it actually implies when we're not even here anymore. When the Lord has moved us on to a different location, that we will still carry out the principles of this covenant. So these are Christian commitments and Christian desires that we live out wherever the Lord might lead lead us. And so if the Lord would move us on from this place, we find another local church that preaches the pure gospel, that's passionate about these things, and we unite with them on mission. So the desire is not to to isolate away from this place, but to engage other 
churches in those locations. You might be thinking, well, just how important is it to unite with a church? I feel like I'm going to give a lot of preliminary thoughts here before we really get into uh, really looking at one phrase in our passage this morning. But I, I think it's important enough that one of the main questions that we should ask when we relocate or before we relocate is, is there a gospel preaching church nearby that I can get involved with, join, and grow in? And there's some follow-up questions. If there's not a gospel preaching church that I can join and unite with and grow with, can I be instrumental in starting a gospel preaching church in that area? What options are there? And if that's not feasible, then I think we should think long and hard before we move to that location. People always want to know, what is God calling me to? Maybe he's calling me over here or to that job or that position or that area. And sometimes those things aren't as clear as we would like. But one thing we do know is clear, that we are called to be a part of a local church family. That God has designed his church for his people, for your benefit, for your spiritual growth. And outside of that, we are going to struggle. And so that one thing we do know. This is going to inform how we make certain life decisions. And so when we we think about the church covenant and we think about what we're calling one another to strive for, we're, we're going beyond this local church. It's not just about caring about this local church, but we are caring about every local church that holds to this gospel. We're not competing with other gospel churches. Instead, we want to see as many of them as healthy and growing as possible. That's why we pray for them. In, the, in Sunday mornings, we're either praying for one of our missionaries or for a local church in the area. And we desire this because we have a love for Christ's church in every location. So when you leave CBC, when you move away, if the Lord calls you to that. I don't know if you're aware of this, and you may never have to experience this, but the leadership of our church follows up with you after you've left to see if you've been able to connect to another church in the area that you went, or even beforehand to help you in the search process of being connected to another local church. That's how strongly we feel about this. The mindset of the shepherds, the mindset of the elders is that the sheep are under our watch until they can be united to another church under the watch care of shepherds. We don't want to see sheep out wandering on their own at any stage of life. We have a few high school seniors this year. I don't know what the Lord will have for you next year. Some of you already have plans, but I would encourage you as you move off to college, that you would find a local church in that area and you would plug yourself in and that you would be a part, as you're able to during that school year, a part of that local body. And we don't encourage these things because you know, it's, it's the right thing to do by going to church. 
It's not, that's not simply why we would encourage that, but because God has designed the church for mission and discipling. He's designed his church that way. In other words, it's within the context of the local church, a local church, not just ours, but his church, that mission and discipling function best. It's where you're going to grow the best. It's how mission's going to be carried out the best in the world. So God places a high value on the church, and so should we. Now you might be asking, well, how do you know that God values his church this much? That, that we should be thinking about the, this seems, this seems like a little bit extreme. I'm supposed to worry about what church is in the area before I take a position in, in a job? How do we know God values his church? And this brings us to our text here in Acts 20. And I think this is one of the locations in, in the scriptures that we can go to to see that God highly values his church. Paul here in Acts chapter 20 is on his third missionary journey. And he's on a ship headed to Jerusalem to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, for the Feast of Weeks and that celebration they would have. And I have, I have a, a little map here. Hopefully it turns up clearly. I didn't really... Oh, uh, it's not too bad. Um, you see Ephesus uh, there kind of right in the, in the middle of the screen. And you see the red line going down. He's actually heading down across the Mediterranean to Jerusalem. And instead of going to Ephesus where he's already ministered and he has, he's, has an established church there with elders and, and, and believers, he calls the elders there to meet him in Miletus so he doesn't have to to deviate up to Ephesus. He doesn't have to go inland. He can just right on the ship, right on the coastline, and meet the elders there. And it's here that he is going to give these elders some final words of encouragement and instruction. And this is simply from our text. I'm not, I'm not any great historian. Verse 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend much time, might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. That's where that history comes from, from the context of our passage. Then in verse 24, Paul mentions that he wants to finish his course and the ministry he received from the Lord Jesus. He wants to be faithful. He has dedicated his life to preaching the gospel, to seeing people come to know Jesus as Savior, to organizing them into local churches, to establishing elders over them. And he wants to see this church continue in faithfulness to the Lord. We come to verse number 28. And Paul instructs the elders here to pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So, so in this final uh, exhortation to, to, to the elders, he, he's saying, I want you to care for the church. I'm putting a value on this church. Enough to instruct you in these things. Verse 29, he tells us why. 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. There's a concern here that that wolves are waiting to come in and destroy the sheep. This This is very passionate language that Paul is using. And it only makes sense if we understand what the church is. Okay, this this doesn't make sense that he would be so passionate and he would use this descriptive language as he's doing if we're thinking that the church is a helpful nonprofit or community organization. Why did Paul care so much about the church of Ephesus? That he's, he's actually anticipating there's going to be wolves. And again, we're not, we're not talking, he's not talking about literal wolves and literal sheep. He's using that to describe people that are either uh, believers in Christ, the sheep, they're for the gospel, or those that would undermine that. Why is he so concerned that there's people that are actually going to attack the sheep and attack this message? Well, the church is spiritual. It is a spiritual entity. There is a spiritual battle happening in this world. One of our songs alluded to this. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So there's an assault on the church by Satan and his forces. A spiritual battle. Satan isn't attacking helpful community organizations that aren't preaching the gospel. He doesn't care about those things. He's focused on the church, and Peter tells us he is like a lion walking around seeking those he can devour. He hates the church, if for no other reason, because God values the church. And we're right back to that question. How how do you know God values the church? I think the reason that we can say that is found in that final phrase of verse 28. And we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at this this small little phrase. He tells the elders, care for the church of God. And then he says, which he obtained with his own blood. Which he obtained with his own blood. Blood. Let's look at this phrase. I want to look at that first word, he. Now, if you read this whole verse, it seems pretty obvious who the he is. Okay? He, he says, uh, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Basic in- English grammar tells us that the last person mentioned prior to that final phrase is God. So God is the he. Now, This phrase brings a lot of questions, and I think someone who's not a Christian is going to have a lot of questions about this phrase. The logical question is, what's this about God having blood? God's a spiritual God. I thought we were talking about a spiritual church. Isn't God spiritual? Well, he is, and he's also physical. We're going to talk about that. Stay with me here. The God of the Bible is distinct from any God that you will encounter, that you will hear about at any point in your life. He's distinct in his character. The God of the Bible is holy. He is just. He's pure. He's set apart. And yet he's merciful. And he's loving. 
and he's good, and he's personal. All of these things together make up the character of God and more. Obviously, that's not exhaustive. But other gods that are out there that that religions worship and people worship, they may have some of these characteristics, but not all together. God is unique in his character. This he that we're talking about is distinct from any God that you will encounter. But the God of the Bible is also distinct, not just in his character, but in, in his essence. Doug alluded to this there at the end of one of those songs, that God is three persons, yet one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's what Christians refer to as the Trinity. No other religion recognizes this. And as Christians, when we talk about the Trinity, we're careful to articulate and to remind one another and others that, hey, we're not, we're not polytheists. We don't believe in many gods. God is one. The Lord our God, he is one. But he's three persons. And he exists simultaneously as three persons. No one has ever seen the Father, and yet at the same time, Scripture tells us that we can see God. I think John 1.18 helps us here, shed some light on this. Here, here's what John says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, so there's a distinction there, some translations read the only son who is at the father's side. He has made him known. So on the one hand, God is spiritual and no one has ever seen the fullness of God's glory. On the other hand, he has been revealed to us. We can see him in the person of Jesus Christ. When you see Jesus the son, you see the father. This is a, this is a hard truth the disciples, those that walked with Jesus, they struggled with this. John chapter 14 and verses 8 to 11. Let me, let me read these verses here on the screen for you. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it, it is enough for us. I kind of hear some discouragement here in this next phrase. Jesus said to him, have I, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus says, I'm one with the Father. We are one God. Different persons, one God. So the he in our verse in Acts 20, 28 is in fact God himself, but it's the second member of the Trinity, God the Son. Jesus incarnate. And so Paul's argument to these elders here is that they are to pay careful attention to the flock, themselves included, because 
Elders are just sheep as well. And they are to care for the church. And the question then is, why? Why, Paul, are you so concerned that we care for the church? Because he. Because God. Paul doesn't say, hey, I I want you to care for the flock because, because I see a good thing going and I don't want it to stop. He doesn't say care for the flock because I want you to. He says care for the flock because he, because God. God is at the center of the church, not ourselves. Paul's passionate about the church because God is passionate about the church. And this runs counter to a lot of the ways that church is often viewed The church has become very me-centered. We place value on the church based on what we can get out of it. And if it's not valuable to me, I'll move on and find something or another place that is valuable. Now this is not to say that we don't expect to receive something when we're here on Sunday mornings, when we gather as a church at other times, when you meet with the church uh, members during the week. But the, wor- but, but the focus is not on the me, it's on the fact that he cares for the church. The word he used for care here entails a lot of different things as it relates to caring for sheep, but one of those things is the idea of feeding. The sheep should be fed with God's word. And we as a church should be making this a family where people are growing spiritually, where we can step away and say, hey, I benefited from being here this morning. I'm growing in the Lord. But it's not all about me. What I can get out of it. That's just the result of living with an others-centered and a God-centered view of the church I debated on sharing this because it might surprise some of you, but I'm going I'm to share this. In my, opi- in my opinion, in my experience, uh, it is harder to walk the Christian life in vocational ministry than it is working a job and being an active member in a church. I've experienced both of those settings, uh, working bivocationally, uh, both in ministry and a job at the same time, working only a non-ministry position job, and then now in full-time vocational ministry. And I, I can share my reasonings with you later if, you, if you'd like to hear it. I'm not going to get into that, what, why I feel this way. But it's harder for me to to live and walk the Christian life in some ways, I'll at least say it like that, in a vocational ministry position. And I say all that, and and some of the reason I debated it, I wasn't sure how it would come across. I I don't say that in a complaining way. I love where the Lord has placed me and my family. And so this this is not a complaint in any way. 
But I'm sharing that because it would be easier for me to just work a job and be actively involved in the church. You say, why, why are you in vocational ministry? I thought about that. And, and really, I just kept coming back to some of the words of Paul where Paul says, I am compelled by God to do it. The love of Christ constrains, compels me to this. And so in my own life, if God values the church, then I value the church and however God gifts me and wants to use me for the good of his church, that's more important than what I feel like may be easier for me. Because it's not about me. It's about him. So Paul starts this last phrase talking about God. The focus is on him. He And then that second word there we're going to look at, he obtained it. Obtained simply means to purchase, to buy, to acquire something. He purchased it, it, the church. He purchased his church. So purchasing something implies that you've acquired it, that it's yours. You now own it. You've acquired possession of it. When we think about purchasing something, when you go to make a purchase and buy something at the store or online, there's a couple questions I think we ask ourselves. First, is this valuable to me? Is this something I want to own? And then if we decide yes, we ask the second question, well, how valuable is it? What am I willing to spend on it? What is the level of value compared to other things that I could buy? Well, in the first two words of this phrase, we read this, He purchased. Which tells us the answer, God's answer to that first question, the church is valuable to God. Valuable enough that He says, I'll purchase it. I'll purchase them. I'll buy them. Remember what the church is from past sermons. The people. So God's not, I hope this is obvious, He's not buying a building. Doesn't see much value in the building. God's buying a people. He sees value in people. From time to time, you might ask yourself, am I valuable? Do I have worth? Do I matter to anyone? We remind ourselves of this truth. He purchased me. Christian believer, God asked the question, are they valuable? And his answer was, yes, they are, and I'm going to purchase them. They are going to be mine. You are going to be mine. So the question of personal worth and value doesn't hinge on our successes. It doesn't hinge on our popularity, our social media likes. It doesn't hinge on whether or not you're an Eagles fan. Throw that one in there. Our value as a person comes from the value God places on us. Once purchased, his value doesn't diminish. 
I should say our value doesn't diminish in his eyes. We're not left on the shelf and forgotten about. One of the greatest parenting tricks is packing up unused toys and after a year or so reintroducing them to your kids. They forgot about it. Their value is diminished. You could try it this year. Look at some of the toys that they never play with. But after some time, the value is restored. And I use that as a way of saying God's not like that. God doesn't get tired with us and say, I just need a break from them. And then maybe I come back to them, I see some of the value. God, the value God places on us and our value to him remains steadfast and perfect because our value is based on the perfect payment. These two words, he purchased, lead us into really answering that second question that I mentioned about making a purchase. How valuable is it? So God purchased his people. What did he have to give up? How valuable was it to God? Well, what does the end of that phrase say in verse 28? With his own blood. In any transaction, when we buy something, in order to get something of value, you have to give something of value. There's an exchange that's made. And this is where we gauge in answering that question, how valuable is this to me? How much is it worth? Today, we live in a culture that pressures us a lot into making quick purchasing decisions. Sometimes we don't, we don't even realize it. We don't even get a chance to consider of the, val- the value of the item that we're purchasing because we just feel that pressure to purchase it. This is why salesmen are employed, to get us to make the purchase. If you're in sales, I apologize for this. But everybody knows the feeling of walking into a store where there's salespeople. You walk into the store, and the first thing you do is try not to make eye contact. (laughs) If they're on the left, I'm going right. Even if what I need is on the left... I'll go to the back of the store and try to make my way around and you try to avoid them until you can look at the item without much pressure. But inevitably, it comes back around to what? Oh, I got, okay, yes, we want to buy it. If we're going to make the purchase, we have to engage the salesperson. And so we ask them, hey, I'm interested in that item. And then the negotiation starts. That's equally as awful. I don't enjoy that aspect of it either. But you're working through that process of how valuable is the thing that I'm trying to purchase? What am I going to spend on it? Because we're going to have to give up something of value in order to gain something of value. So Paul then writes this, that Jesus obtained his church with his own blood. He's speaking of the death of Jesus. So this puts Jesus in an earthly body with literal blood. God is spiritual, but yet 
He became human. God is 100% man and yet 100% God in the person of Jesus Christ. And the price for us was his own life. 1 Peter chapter 1 in verses 18 and 19 say this, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. He laid down his life so you could have life, eternal life with God. It's only the blood of Jesus that cleanses us and gives us new life. The price for our salvation is not something we can afford. I can't afford it. You can't afford it. Our rebellion against God is what we call sin. Is that we live, in our, we live our lives the way we want to live them. When we think about sin, sometimes that term gets thrown around. I think many of us know what it means, but some of us may be a little unsure. The issue of sin isn't, isn't just simply that we live badly. We do wrong things. We can live good moral lives and still be living in a way that we, have, we, we don't have any consideration for God in our lives. This is why Jesus had an issue with the Pharisees. They lived good moral lives on the outside, but they had no real consideration for God. They didn't live with Him as their Lord. God, though, is telling us that we live life with him and we are to live life with him as with him as our as our rightful master he is our creator so sin then is living life apart from god and in that sense it is rebellion romans 6:23 tells us that the payment for sin is death it's one of the first verses that kids in Awana learn The payment for sin is death. And so all of us owe a payment. We're in debt. And so to purchase eternal life with God, it's going to cost a life, except when we look at our spiritual wallets, we're broke. We're empty. We have nothing to pay with. Our life has already been marred by sin, and so we can't offer that. Instead, we are indebted. We can try other types of payments. We can try religious works, earthly successes, obedience at home, school, or work. We can try all of these things, but these things can never cover the debt of sin that we owe. You know, I worked with a guy who was a few hundred thousand dollars in school debt. That's not unusual today. That's not, it's not even the, the, the main reason I bring it up. But when we would talk about that, you know, when, when we were able to at work, he would say things like this, you know, I don't even try to pay it off anymore. I pay the minimum payment, 
but the interest accrued every month is higher than the minimum payments. He says, he would say, I, I'll go to my grave with this debt. I can never pay it off. And we would have those conversations, and I, I would always think, like, I wonder what he's feeling like deep down, because that would be discouraging to me. I mean, I would feel hopeless to have that mindset in your 30s, I'm never paying it off. But some of you are at this point spiritually. You've given up. You're tired. You've tried all the things to earn God's favor. You want the guilt to go away. You want to feel better about yourself. But deep down you know the debt is is too much. The burden is too great. The sin is too weighty. And you're never going to overcome it. And it's discouraging and it's hopeless. Remember what we've been talking about, that God sees us as valuable. We're so valuable that he sees us in our debt that we can never pay for, and he pays the debt for us. He pays it in full. And and there's no chance of running up the credit card again. It's paid for once for all. But it's going to cost a life. Blood will be shed. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But it has to be a life that isn't in debt, which means it has to be a life that is sinless. Which brings us back to the He. Jesus being the only sinless one, steps into humanity, lives that sinless life so that he can purchase us by giving us his life. He saw us more valuable than himself and he lays his life down in order to bring us to God. You might be asking the question, can someone pay for another person's sin? There's, there's, there's several religions out there that, that actually would say, no, you're responsible for your own sin. And at one level, Christianity also says, yes, you're responsible for your sin, but 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 2 tells us this. It says, he, Jesus, is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the sacrifice for our sins. There's a substitution that's taking place. His perfect life is the only life that could be substituted because it's the only life that's not under judgment. It's not in debt. So yes, someone can pay for another person's sin. But can someone, can one man pay for the sins of many? Romans chapter 5 and verses 18 and 19, I have on the screen for you. I have some words underlined for you as well. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19, we have that on there. There, go back one. There we go. No, one back. 
almost. There we go. Freeze. The result of one trespass, that is of Adam, was condemnation for all men. So also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. You see, Adam is the representative of humanity. In Adam, we all sin. We are all under the curse of sin. And as a result, die. Jesus is the representative of a new humanity. And in Christ, all are made perfect. And as a result, live. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for sin of all who would trust in him. His blood is sufficient to cover all of your sin, past, present, and future. Never forget that. Maybe you have sins of the past that you think, I'll never be forgiven. Jesus' blood covers those sins. Maybe you're living in sin now, you're committed sins even this week, and you think, how could God forgive me again? If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are cleansed through the blood of Christ that is sufficient. So whether they're sins that are big or small, The blood of Jesus is sufficient. We're going to sing a song in a moment. And the words to that song, as we sing, read this. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain. For the sins of the world, His blood breaks the chains. He purchases people with His own blood, and His blood will never lose its power to forgive. So the church is valuable enough to God that he gives his life for it. But now he also lives for it. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. This is present now. Since he always lives to intercede them. His care for the church wasn't just a past action. We look to the cross. That's something he did for his church to, to obtain it, to purchase us. But even now he is living and that's a present reality that he is interceding. He's still valuing his church that he might present us as a pure bride on that day. Jesus' church isn't just CBC. And our love for the church should go beyond this congregation. We want to see every local church healthy, living, and thriving, and preaching the gospel. And so the principles of this covenant are greater than Covington Baptist Church. 
We're not just saying, hey, this is for our church, but this is the way we are to live wherever the Lord may lead us. And so we see these principles as our responsibility in light of Scripture to be lived out in any location the Lord should call us to.